well on the say hello to somebody part, and then you've just sort of fallen back. You're kind of regressing. So we'll try it again. Say hello to somebody. Like, actually say hello to somebody, and tell them you're glad to see them, and how was your week, and how can I pray for you, and we're so glad you're here, and all of that stuff. I'm super glad to be here, and it uh, was uh, brutal having to miss last week. Uh, apparently, I tested positive for COVID. You could have surprised me because I didn't have a single symptom, didn't even feel yucky at all, but just to avoid the I got COVID from my pastor and died headlines, I thought that I would stay home, but awfully glad to be here. Um, it is Pastor Chris's turn this week to not be here. So youth, the bad news for you guys is that you are so in here with us today. The good news for the elementary kids, though, is that Monsieur Ed and Miss Anne are ready to take you guys out so you can dash that way and, um, and head out with them. Um, and while they're doing that, everybody else can turn to the book of Joshua. It's to the left of your Bible. It's the sixth book of the Bible. So uh, if you want to turn there now, uh, we're going to dive in um, this morning. Hey, I wanted to ask if you would um, pray with me. Of course, you heard about the eruption of the volcano uh, out near Tonga. And uh, we have a, a dear woman who's become sort of a, a, a real part of our extended family. Her name is Italiana. We call her Telly. And uh, she helps to take care of my parents. And uh, she's from Tonga. Her whole family, m many of them, I think she has eight or 10 or 12 children, something, lots of children. Some of them still live in Tonga. And uh, I was texting with her this morning and uh, they lost contact with all of their family and with the village there. Um, but at the point that they had contact, they were all sort of headed for higher ground because they live right there on the coast. And she says she's fully expecting that the village is underwater at this point. So um, she would covet our prayers. So we'll pray for Ateliana and her family. She loves the Lord. I think most of her family knows the Lord. And so uh, we'll just watch and wait to see the way that the Lord shows himself strong on their behalf. So let's pray for her and all the others in Tonga. Let's pray that the Lord really blesses our time here together this morning as we uh, dive into what I know is going to be an exciting uh, study for us. So, Father, we are so thankful to be here today, Lord. We're thankful for all of those who you've brought here, Lord. We do pray for all of those within our church uh, who are sick, perhaps, or at home, Lord, or exposed. Or, Lord, we just thank you for the way that you are seeing us through this, uh, this pandemic, Lord, as it morphs and changes and... Uh, Lord, we're just thankful for the fact that you're walking through this with us. And so uh, we do pray for those in our church, Lord. We pray for all of those who are at home watching us this morning, that you'd bless them, Lord, as you're going to bless us, uh, we who are here. Um, Father, we do pray for those in Tonga who are so impacted, Lord. In particular, we pray for Teliana uh, and her uh, family, Lord, and all of them who... Um, Lord, have uh, sort of fled the lowlands, headed for higher ground, and we just pray that you would be with them, Lord, keep them safe, and that you would uh, indeed show yourself strong on their behalf, Lord, in these coming days as you care for them. And um, so, Lord, we just entrust them to you, and we ask your blessing as well, Lord, as we go to your word today. We pray that you'd give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs> 
Amen. So yeah, I didn't mention this, but if you don't have a Bible this morning, we've got Bibles that you can use. You can use the Bible on your phone. Uh, you can do whatever you like to do. One more quick note. Um, I do hope that you are dwelling through the Bible with us. If you're not, it's not too late to sign up. And just my quick plug for the small groups and the life groups, um, they start up this week. So if you've been waiting to sign up, congratulations, you'd accomplished that. And now it's actually time to sign up and to be part of one of those. Um, great group for men, great group uh, groups for the ladies. Um, and then the life groups in particular, you've got the book of James that Pastor Jeff is going to teach through and the book of Ecclesiastes that, um, uh, your name just went out of my head, Justin's going to go through, sorry, bless your heart, Justin. He's going to go through the book of Ecclesiastes, and in particular, the group on Wednesday night at the Nelson's house, it's a sermon discussion group on the book of Joshua. So the idea is that we're here together looking at the word on Sundays, and then you guys get to get together on Wednesday nights and talk about where I missed it, how I got it wrong, and how you disagree, and that was sort of a joke, I hope, right? So I'm not there on Wednesday nights, but it's your opportunity just to get together and kind of maybe explore some of the themes that we don't have that much time to go really in depth on on Sunday mornings. Maybe just talk about the way that the Lord is ministering to you through this particular book. Uh, just an opportunity really to, to make that book uh, your own. So that's my plug for the life groups and the, uh, uh, and the small groups. And as Susie said, we have all the books available at the info table. If you don't want to sign up online, we can sign you up online uh, today. So the book of Joshua. So the book of Joshua is a, a pivotal book in the Old Testament canon of scripture because as we enter into it, we're really entering into a whole new section of the Old Testament. Um, you know that the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, are known as the Pentateuch, or sometimes the books of the law, or the Torah to the Jews. And then when we come into the book of Joshua, all the way through then to the book of Esther, we're in what is known as the historical books, because they give us a history right, of the nation of Israel as they were established in their land and really as a nation. The historical books run all the way through the kings, ultimately into the Assyrian and then the Babylonian captivities that the children of Israel ultimately went into and then follows them and their restoration back into the land, as we've been listening to in Dwell this week, under Ezra and then under Nehemiah. And then, of course, after that, we have what are called the books of wisdom, right, or the books of poetry, that's Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job and the, the Song of Solomon. And then finally, of course, come the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, take us all the way from Isaiah all the way through to Malachi. So that's the way that the Jews divide the Old Testament, and it's more or less the way that we look at them today. And yet what's important for us to understand, especially as we look together at the historical books, as well as at all of the history that's recorded for us in those first five books, is that they are actual history, but they are so much more than simply history. So all of those books, there's much more than God just saying, listen, I want you to know a few things about the Jewish people and about this 
olive tree that I'm grafting you into as Christians. It's more than just strict history. It's what we know, it's what we as Bible students would refer to as typical history. So it's history which contains types. And you remember we've talked before that in the Bible, a type is a symbol that's given by God to point to something higher in the future or kind of a a Bible dictionary definition would say that it's a person, place, or event in the Old Testament that has its own proper significance, but also prefigures a person, place, or event later in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. One of the most obvious examples, of course, is the record of Jonah and his three days that he spent in the belly of the great fish that Jesus himself said pointed to his coming three days that he would spend in the tomb. So in other words, Bible history is an actual and an accurate written record of the actual history of the children of Israel. But that whole history in and of itself is also a type, right? It's a picture of something else that's to come. So as we look at all of these physical things that they went through, all of those physical experiences they lived through and we watch the way that the Lord brought them through, what the Bible teaches us is that those physical things that happened to the Jews, they speak something spiritual to each of us as Christians. You remember that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, he explained as he was talking about the history and the experience of the Jewish people in the Old Testament, he says this, he says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And then he sums this all up in verse 11. He says, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So it's all intended to speak something spiritual to us, to speak about something spiritually to us about Jesus himself and about the way that we relate to him personally. Remember, Jesus said the very same thing. Remember when he spoke to the religious leaders of the day concerning the Old Testament? In John chapter 5, he said that you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, And then what did he say? He said, and these are they which testify of me. And we've talked about the fact before that it was the tabernacle first and then, of course, the temple later that were filled with shadows and types, right? They were filled with these pictures and these portraits in the way that they were laid out and in the way that they were furnished and that all of those elements symbolically pointed ahead to Jesus, So as we approach this book of history, we need to approach it as so much more than just history because it's really intended to communicate something spiritually, to paint a picture spiritually about our lives. And the history of the Jews that comes before it is what really sets the stage and kind of provides the backdrop 
for that picture. So I just want to spend about an hour and a half this morning. No, that's a kid. That's a joke. But you start with the Jews and their time in Egypt. That's a picture of the world. Egypt is a picture of our time, each one of us, that we spent in the world. And the, the Lord's deliverance of them out of Egypt, his redemption of them, his saving them out of that slavery in Egypt, that's a picture of our salvation. The way that God has saved us out of the world and the way that he saved us out of that bondage of sin. The way that Pharaoh rose up and opposed God and opposed Moses as he worked with God to deliver Israel, that's a picture of the fight, no doubt, that the devil waged over each and every one of us to keep us from being delivered from his grasp. You think back to that miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, that's a picture for us of our water baptism. It's this stunning kind of an illustration of that act that, that you know, symbolizes our separation from the things of the past, right? our separation from those things of Egypt and the bondage of sin and of the world. And we know then in the history of Israel that from that point that God's great intention was to lead the children of Israel right into Canaan, right into the promised land, but it was because of their lack of faith and their disobedience that they faltered in preparing to actually enter the promised land. And so God was forced to discipline them and to kind of deal with them by really allowing them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, which yet in and of itself is another picture. Right? The, the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness is a picture of a Christian who is born again, right? So they are out of Egypt and they've been water baptized and yet they've actually yet to enter into the promised land. The promised land is a picture, as we're going to see in our study, not of heaven, the way that some old spiritual songs might have us to believe, but the promised land is not a picture of heaven, but it's a picture of the victorious and the abundant Christian life here on this earth right now. That so many Christians come just short of. So many Christians who for whatever reason they have yet to really walk by faith in all of those promises that are found right here in the Bible. So whether it's because of their unbelief or carnality or maybe lukewarmness, whatever it is, they've somehow just decided, you know, I'm happy just to be out of the world. I've been baptized. I'm happy. I know I'm on my way to heaven. But as far as all of these promises of God and possessing them and all of that being conformed more and more each day into the image of Jesus Christ, that's not really something I'm interested in. I don't think I need to claim those promises. I don't want to work to attain those promises. I don't want to have to step out into those promises. And so what does a Christian like that do? Well, they just wander around in a wilderness for the whole of their Christian life in a dry and a desolate, kind of a desolate wilderness kind of a Christian life, which is not at all what God has intended for us. 
Remember in John chapter 10 when Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. And then what does he say? And that you might have it more abundantly. So all of us in this room or, or tuning in today, all of us who've been born again, we have life. right? We have eternal life. But do we have abundant life? So it's this, the promised land for us as Christians is that picture of that rich, full, abundant, kind of flowing with milk and honey kind of spiritual life that's available to each and every one of us as we take possession of each and every single promise of God in the Bible. It's walking in those New Testament truths here and now in this life. That's our promised land. And the book of Joshua shows us how we can get there. It shows us how we can get out of the wilderness and come into God's fullness. And it starts off by showing us first the only one who can possibly lead us there. So look at verse 1. I know you thought you'd, we'd never get there, right? Look at verse 1. In the book of Joshua, chapter 1, it says that after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. So Moses... Moses was truly a great man. And I think we see here that he is given what is the highest title of honor that any of us could possibly attain in this life. The Lord himself refers to him as what? Simply as the servant of the Lord. That's what made Moses great. He had faithfully served the Lord for 40 years. He was used mightily by the Lord in the deliverance of his people from Egypt, in the receiving of the law there atop Mount Sinai, in the giving of the law to the people, then the construction of the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then leading the people through the wilderness. Right? Moses had an, an intimacy with God. He had even met face to face with God during that time in a way that no other man ever had. In the very final words of the book of Deuteronomy, right, the verses just before our first verse here in Joshua, here's what it says in Deuteronomy 30, 34, 10 to 12, speak to us of Moses' death. It says that since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. In all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land. And by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. So Moses was a great man. But his ministry had now taken the Jews as far as it could take them, and it was now time for a new leader. And though Moses was dead, clearly God's plan and his great purpose for his people was still very much alive, and Joshua would now be the key figure to fulfill that plan, and there's a reason for that. See, Moses 
through whom God gave the law, is himself a picture of the law. And so Moses had brought the people to the edge of the promised land, and yet it would now be Joshua who would actually need to bring them into the promised land. And some of you may already know what I'm about to tell you, that the name Joshua is simply the Old Testament Hebrew name for the New Testament Greek name for Jesus. And in fact, Numbers chapter 13, we read that Joshua's name originally was Hosea, which means salvation. But Moses changed his name from Hosea to Joshua. So from salvation to Jehovah is salvation. And of course, I know all of you Bible students, you're not going to be at all surprised when I tell you that Joshua is a type or a picture of Jesus. And it's important to note here that Moses, who represents the law, he could bring the children of Israel to the land of milk and honey, but he couldn't bring them into those promises. It was only Joshua who could do that in the very same way that no one can ever enter into the promises of God for a Christian on the basis of the law. It only comes by faith. There comes a point in the life of every Christian in this room and listening today where Joshua needs to take up where Moses needs to leave off. Remember, it was the Apostle Paul who told us in Galatians 3 that therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, he says, we are no longer under a tutor. So the law teaches us that we're sinners and that we've fallen short of God's standard. And it instructs us or it drives us to seek forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But then we need to move forward from that point. We need to move forward with him by faith into that new life of fullness and abundance according to all of these promises that he's given to us and this provision that Jesus made for us. So it's moving forward not in some kind of a legalistic life of do's and don'ts or you know, tries and try harders or work and work harder or some sort of a Christian experience full of frustration and failure, but it's moving forward in this faith-filled life where we're resting in all of the, that, those precious promises and resting in that finished work of Jesus. And we're walking then in the grace of Jesus. And so for each and every one of us, just like we see here, this is this call to enter into these promises through our faith in God. And it was Joshua, not Moses, who would bring them into the promised land in just the same way that it's Jesus that leads us into that spiritual rest and into that victorious life. Now, one more quick note to note about Joshua. Sometimes we can have this picture of some 17-year-old kid that they plucked out of the youth group and put in charge of leading Israel. Sorry, youth group, that's not exactly the way it went down. At this point, Joshua here is probably 
80 years old. He's very possibly 90 years old. And he has been prepared pretty considerably to follow after Moses in this position. Joshua was born in Egypt. He knew that life of slavery. He was a part of that miraculous exodus out of Egypt. Right? He was then, he was a war seasoned, he was a battle-toughened leader of Israel's military. He led them to that very first victory, remember, in Exodus chapter 17 when they fought against the Amalekites. It says right here, he was the personal assistant of Moses for that last 40 years of all of those wilderness wanderings. And we remember from Exodus chapter 37 that during that time, it said that Moses had this very special tent that was set up for him outside the camp where he would go and he would meet with God and he'd receive that direction from God. And it was Joshua's job to stay there at the tent and guard it. And I love that because it shows us that Joshua was not only a warrior, but Joshua was a worshiper. Joshua was a man who knew how to live in the presence of God, most notably because he was a great man of faith. You might remember that he was one of only two of those 12 spies who'd been sent out by Moses 40 years before that to spy out the promised land the first time around back in Numbers chapter 13. You remember that he and Caleb came back with this faith-filled report that they should press in and take the land. And yet what happened? Of course, the fear of the majority won out and overwhelmed the faith of the minority. And it forced the Lord, as we said, to kind of reroute them to take the long way around, right? The 40-year long way around, wandering in the wilderness until once again they were right back here on the brink of entering into all that he promised. So that's Joshua. And so here, God now says to Joshua, as he shows to Joshua, and he's going to confirm his promise to Joshua, Joshua's going to be encouraged in verse 3 and 4 by the promise of God. And God says this to Joshua. He says that every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. So imagine the scene, right? Standing there encamped on the east side of the Jordan, the Lord shows Joshua all of this land that he had so long ago first promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, which we just listened to this week, didn't we? Then he reaffirms it to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, and then to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, and then to all of their descendants in Genesis chapter 50, and then he reaffirms this promise again in Exodus and in Leviticus and in Numbers and in Deuteronomy. This was a huge, beautiful piece of land. It is the most beautiful part of all of that land over there. What's interesting is that the land of Israel is not unlike a mini California, 
right? It has forests in the north. It has desert in the south. It has this beautiful coastline that runs all the way down the west. And it has this fertile, wonderful valley that runs right down the middle of it. And all of that was given to them by God. And understand, this is real land with real marked out boundaries. This wasn't some sort of a, like some pie in the sky, I'm going to give you a place somewhere kind of a promise. This was real land. And all they had to do was to go and get it. Did you notice the, the different verbs that God uses here? In verse 2, he talks about the land which I am giving. And then here in verse 3, he talks about the land I have given. There is no thought of I will give or I might give or I may give. It's I am giving, I have given. But notice what had to happen for them to get it. The beginning of verse 3, he says that they will have every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon. So they had an active part in possessing this promise. He'd already given them the land. All they had to do now was to simply step out in faith and claim it, right? They had to step out and they had to begin to walk in it. And our Christian lives are no different. Because for us as believers, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has already, what? Blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He's already done that. But there comes a point where we each need to step out in faith and to step out by faith in order to possess all of those spiritual possessions. And that in and of itself is a picture of our Christian life. And it's as we would look at the hundreds of promises in the, in the Bible and God says, look, all of those are yours. You're in Christ Jesus. All of those things belong to you. All of those promises belong to every single Christian, no matter how obscure or how powerless or how overlooked in the world you might feel or you may actually be. This spiritual life, it belongs to you. And you are rich beyond measure. But, there's always a but, right? But you will only have as much of this spiritual life, right? You'll only have as much of this taste of heaven, this side of heaven, as you're willing to claim and to possess on your own. And of course, the classic illustration that's always used is that you imagine that you have a rich aunt or a rich uncle who dies, and you find out after that that they've left you $100 million as an inheritance. But you don't believe that it's true. And here you have $100 million in your account, and yet you continue to live as a pauper in the world. You never go to the bank, you never transfer over, you never draw out even a single dollar. So you're a multimillionaire, and you're living in poverty because you will not believe the promise. You won't believe that that money really belongs to you. And so you don't claim it. You won't take possession of it. And so what you're doing is you're living a hundred million miles below 
the lifestyle that's available to you. And of course, not one of us would ever do that, but it's the very same thing spiritually when we have all of these exceedingly great and precious promises, remember that Peter told us that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. So we have all of these exceedingly precious promises that it promises that are given to us in this Bible. But if a person looks at it and says, you know, I just don't believe that those things are true of me. I don't believe that God has really given those things to me. And then we live all of our Christian life as though we're just poor beggars. You know, we're still living in the world. We're happy to be getting to heaven at the end of all of this. But we're still living that way now. That's to live way below the promises that God gave us. So how exactly does all of this work? How exactly does this possessing the promises and walking in the promises work? Well, it works by picking up our Bibles. We pick up our Bibles and we read about the fact that God loves me. And that in and of itself, I know, is not an easy truth for a lot of people to accept. But to read that and to simply look and to say, you know what, I'm just going to believe that promise. I'm going to believe that truth about God and I'm going to believe it for the rest of my life. And I'm not going to spend one more day wondering whether God loves me. I'm going to believe that to be true. I'm going to take possession of that promise today and I'm going to make that truth a part of my Christian experience. That was an easy one, right? Or maybe a person reads about the fact that God is forgiving. And then to simply take him at his word that he forgives us every single time that we repent of our sin. Every single time that we come to him and we ask for forgiveness. And even as Christians, people can look and they can live all of their Christian life, right? They're on their way to heaven and yet they beat themselves up every single day over past sin, over present sin. They live in constant guilt and shame, whether that sin was 50 years or five days or five minutes ago. They're beating themselves up and they're living so far below these promises that God has given to them. And what needs to finally happen is that we need to possess those promises and say, you know what? I really believe that God has forgiven me of my sins because he's promised me in his word that he's done that. So I'm not going to think at all about what I was before Christ. And every time one of those thoughts comes into my mind, I'm going to bring that thought into captivity under the obedience of Christ because it is exalting itself above the knowledge of what I know to be true about God. It is flying in the face of the truth of what the Bible tells me about God. So I'm going to cast that out of my mind for the rest of my life and I'm going to live my life now as a forgiven person. And when a Christian can finally do that, that person has just taken 10 jumps forward in the quality of the Christian life that they're living. To simply look and to say, I believe these things to be true because God has promised them. And then to appropriate those things into our lives. And so it is with one promise after another promise after another promise 
after another promise. And because we have so many exceeding rich and wonderful promises that God has given us in his word, we should never stop growing as Christians, right? We just keep moving forward and possessing promises, walking on more of that land that he's given us, page after page, promise after promise, or we don't do that at all. Because sadly, as you probably already know, Israel never actually took full possession of all the land that was promised to them. It wouldn't be until so much later during the reign of Solomon when they even really got close, but they still never possessed it all. It won't actually be until the millennial kingdom when Israel will fully possess the land, all of the land that the Lord had given them here. And this is like yet another spiritual picture for us of so many Christians who seem to say, you know what? I'm just okay with things the way they are. I'm just okay with, you know, this is all the Christianity that I want. This is all the God that I want. This is all the promises I want. I'm just going to stop right here where I am. Because I don't want to be bothered to drive out the Philistines. It's too hard to get rid of the Hittites. I just can't be bothered with all of those Canaanites. It's not worth the aggravation. It's not worth the frustration. I'm just going to settle in this walk that I currently have with God. And you watch so many people walk with the Lord. They take about half of the promises of God somewhere in that first two years that they're walking with him. And then something super strange happens somewhere in there. They just figure... That's enough. That's all I want. I'm fine right where I am. And they stop growing in the promises and they settle in and they miss out. They miss out on everything else that God has. God wants us to grow in these promises all the way up until the day that we breathe our last breath here and we see him there in heaven. He wants us to keep discovering more and more and more. It is one of the most exciting things that can happen in this Christian life. And some of you will agree with me here, is to take and possess just one promise and to really realize how true that promise is. And so what do you do? You take one more step and you possess one more promise. And what happens? You realize that that one is just as true. And then you step out into the next one and guess what? It's true too, isn't it? They're all true because they are all already yours. God didn't say, I will give you the land upon which you walk, he said what? I have given it to you. And not only as we go on, not only does he say, I'll give it to you, but he also promises to be with you as you take it. Look how he continues to encourage Joshua. In verse five, he says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, right? Nobody's gonna stop you in this. He says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Now, you might already have verse 6 underlined in your Bible. We all love this exhortation, right? Be strong and of good courage. It makes great t-shirts, beautiful wall art, really picturesque Instagram posts, right? 
And yet, what I want us to see here is in the context of the exhortation is that the courage and the strength that's being called out of Joshua is a direct result of the promise and the presence of the Lord to be with Joshua. So first we have this call to enter in by faith in God. Then we're encouraged by the promise of God. And here, all of that happens as we're strengthened by the presence of God. And notice again, in God's mind here in verse 6, this is all a done deal. He says, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance. Why? Simply because God would always be with him and he would be with him in the very same measure that he'd always been with, with Moses. And Joshua had watched up close and personal for 40 full years all of the things that God had been with Moses. And God said, listen, you followed after Moses and you've seen everything that happened through Moses' life. And you know what? I did that. I did all of that through Moses' life. And the very same way that I did it through Moses' life, I'm now going to do the very same thing in your life. And as you look back at your life and you compare it to the greatness of Moses' life, you'll realize the exact same thing, that I'm the explanation for everything good that happened. It is a done deal. And it's always amazing to me the way that God views things so very differently than we do. Think about it. Here's Joshua with the death of the great Moses just behind him. Right? And with this gigantic venture of faith and the conquest of the promised land leading three million people, right? that's what's ahead of him. And here he is, a man with, I mean, he has great challenges ahead of him and he knew it. And here's a man who's greatly in need of encouragement and God certainly knows that. So what in the world is God going to say to somebody who's just suffered this kind of a tremendous loss and yet is being called into this huge step of incredible faith in spite of that loss? What does God say to a person in that kind of a position? There's only one thing. He says, I'm going with you. I'm going with you. He says, I'll be with you in that land. And that's the promise. And God says that together, we're going to get this thing done. And you know what? It's no different in those things in our lives that God calls us to do. Those difficult things that he calls us to do, like to possess these promises and to walk in them. And we look at them and we say, you know what, God? This is way beyond me. I can't do this thing that you're calling me to do. I can't love this way. I can't forgive that person in that way. I can't continue to simply be faithful in these other ways. And he says, you know what? Here's the promise that overwhelms all of that. He says, I'm going to be with you. And I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. Literally what he says is I will never leave you or abandon you. And that in particular, I know there may be some of you in this room who can really struggle with this idea. When God comes in and he says, listen, 
I don't know who did what to you. Of course, God does know, but you get my point. He says, I don't know who did what to you, but don't impose that on me when I say, I'm never going to leave you and I'm never going to take you because I won't do it. You'll never turn around and wonder where I went because I don't abandon people. I don't leave people. And you can just imagine what that did in Joshua's heart. To hear God himself say, be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. He says, you're going to do it. It's as good as done. But, God continues, he says, there's one thing that you need to do while you're doing it. Look in verses 7 and 8. He says, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So, not only had God given Joshua this encouragement through the promises of God, and then strengthened him through the presence of God, but here he encourages him through the power of his word to enable him in both of those things. Right? It's the word of God that unlocks our faith as we're enabled by the power of the word of God. The Apostle Paul was so very clear when he wrote to the Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so this strength and this courage would come to Joshua through meditating on the word of God. It would come through believing the promises and obeying those precepts. And if we look back, we can see that this is precisely the way that Jesus himself lived. Right? Jesus believed in the authority of his Bible, right? the Old Testament. He quoted it as the basis for marriage. He quoted Jonah, as we said, to prove his own resurrection. He used his Bible to overcome his own temptation. Right? It is written, it is written, it is written. Right? His power came from steeping his life in the word of God. And in fact, he declared to his disciples, he says, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. And so to live a life that's saturated with the word of God is to be assured of both the presence and the power of God. And this exhortation that, that God gives here is the very same exhortation that Moses had given to the people corporately back in Deuteronomy 11. He says, therefore, you shall keep every commandment which I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land which you cross over to possess. And so now God was taking that corporate exhortation and he was applying it to Joshua personally. And notice this. It wasn't enough for just the priests to have or for the priests to know the word of God on behalf of the people collectively. Joshua needed to take it and make it a part of himself individually. 
Now that Hebrew word that's translated meditate there, it actually means to mutter. Right? And it was that practice of the Jews to read and to reread the scriptures aloud and to hear them read and to hear them reread. So it's more than just thinking about scriptures because if your mind is anything like my mind, the more I think about something, the more my mind wanders. So meditation in the biblical sense isn't trying to clear your mind of everything, it's the opposite. It means to fill your mind because you're speaking verbally, you're quoting the scriptures audibly, you're repeating them repeatedly, right? It means to learn to read or listen to a passage in the morning and then to kind of mutter it over and over throughout the day, kind of chewing through it, right? It's just like the way that a cow will chew the cud, right? Cows eat the grass, and then they swallow the grass, and then what do they do? They spit up the grass, and then they chew it more, and then they swallow it, and then they spit it up, and then they chew it, and you get the idea, right? Four different times, each different time digesting a little bit more of it into this four-compartment stomach that they have, until finally all of the nutrition that's in that grass, each and every bit of it, has now become a part of the cow's whole life. And that's the way the word of God needs to be handled in our lives, right? That throughout the day, it's constantly being digested, right? There's this, you know, it's at the forefront of the mind. I'm thinking about it. I'm kind of ruminating on it, right? The things of the Lord, and I'm digesting it, and it's really becoming a part of me because that's the only way that it becomes from being something that's in my mind to being something that's being worked into my whole Christian life. This is that assured presence of God made so real in our daily experience by the indwelling of the word of God in our lives. And I think that, again, one of the most exciting experiences in life is to take a passage and you read it, or maybe now you listen to it in the morning and you get done with it and you say, you know what, I don't have the foggiest idea what that means. Or maybe you look at it and you say, you know what, I think I know what it means, but I know that there's more going on here. There's stuff that I don't understand. And then just through the course of the day, right, while you're driving or while you're walking or while you're working or while you're whatevering, you just take that same passage and you talk it over and over and you talk it out kind of with the Lord. And then so often there's that one specific moment in time and there it is, right? That you're just talking it through with him and then suddenly he gives you revelation of what's really happening there in that passage. What's really going on in that text. And it is so exciting to have that experience and to gain that kind of understanding because you know that it came from the Lord, and it only comes with making the word of God that single most important, most permeating influence in my life. It's that thing that, medit that that's what I'm meditating on throughout the day. I think it's like Paul wrote to us in the Romans. He said, not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
right, as you think about and meditate on these things that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that's what guarantees us success. From heaven's perspective, right, in whatever it is that we're attempting, it doesn't guarantee us, you know, a life without problems, but it does provide us with a life that is able to deal with any of the problems that come because it's taking full advantage of God's presence and his promises through his word. And I'll simply say this, and then I promise we're going to move on. Remember, the only Bible Joshua actually had was what? The Pentateuch, right? He had the books of Moses. And if Joshua was able to conquer Canaan, having only the first five books of the Bible, right? how much more ought we be able to overcome that we have now the whole word of God? And so we read in verse 9, after the Lord had encouraged Joshua with his promise and with his presence and with the power of his word to strengthen him, he says, have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage, do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Does that sound familiar? It should, because it's precisely what the Lord said to him back in verse 5. God knew he needed to hear this again and to remind Joshua that his success didn't depend solely on his ability to keep God's word, but it depended even more on God's promise to always be present with him. Now, we're going to move much more quickly through the rest of our text. And what we see is that the Lord had just encouraged Joshua in his faith. And so now it was time for Joshua to start to step out in that faith. And his first step would be to encourage the other leaders in their own faith. It says in verse 10, Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. I love that because with the very same confidence that the Lord had spoken to him, Joshua now shares just the first step of his plan with the leaders. And notice again the kind of verbs that he uses. He says, you will cross over. You will possess the land. The Lord is giving this to you. This was a done deal. It was an assumed outcome. It was something that God was doing himself, and he was giving them the opportunity to be part of it. Something new, something fresh. That reference there to three days is a picture or a type of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus because the nation here is about to have a brand new beginning in a brand new land and the Lord was raising them up in a sense to do this brand new work but notice the people had to be prepared to take part in what it was God, do, God was doing. There was this period of preparation, a time of waiting that was needed. It was the preparation of the people of God. And I know that waiting for God is so often the most difficult part. But what I want you to always remember is that days of waiting are so often by design because they're supposed to be days of preparation for what God is going to do next. There's never any wasted time with God. And so if you're in one of those seasons of waiting on the Lord for that next really big thing that you know is coming, 
then just take heart and just do what you can while you wait so that you're ready when the time comes to move forward. And the encouragement is do those things even if those things that you're doing somehow don't seem to be making any sense while you're doing them. And here's what I mean. Notice here that Joshua's instructions to the leaders, I think, seem a little bit strange. Because instead of commanding them to put some food together, what I think we would more expect Joshua to say is, hey, let's build a bunch of boats. Go gather up all the wood you can gather. We're going to throw some rafts together so we can float our way across the Jordan River. But instead, what he says is pack some snacks. He says, make a lunch. He says, go pick some berries. Right? But what I love about that is that it shows us that Joshua wasn't trying to second guess God or to get ahead of God and try to work things out for himself about how this was going to happen how he was going to get these three million people across this mighty rushing river, which we'll see in chapter 3, Joshua didn't overthink things the way that most people would, I think because Joshua had a faith perspective that nearly no one else did. Because Joshua knew that that very same God who had opened up the Red Sea could also open up the Jordan River. And remember that at this point, he and Caleb were the only ones left who had been there 40 years ago when God delivered the nation out of Egypt. And they had the confidence that God would work on their behalf again. Just in the very same way, I know for so many of you, you've already seen God work in such miraculous ways in your own past, and you can be just as confident in his ability to do that same thing again in your future or even in the present, whatever it is that you're facing right now. So here's Joshua. He's trusting God for this miracle, but notice he's still faithful to prepare himself and to prepare the people in the little things, right? The practical ways for what it is the Lord was about to do. So we've got most of Israel out there now picking berries and packing up beef jerky, right? They're preparing for this miraculous river crossing that was coming in three days. But as we go on, we see Joshua had some special and some very specific instruction as part of that preparation for three of the tribes. Look at verses 12 through 15. It says that to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half, tribe, or half the tribe of Manasseh, Joshua spoke, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. But you shall pass before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, and help them until the Lord has given your brethren rest as he gave you, and they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. Now quickly remember back in Numbers chapter 32, we remember that Moses made a concession to allow these three tribes to choose to live and to settle 
on the east side of the Jordan and not to cross over the Jordan and to settle actually in the promised land. And if you remember the story, you remember that the tribes liked that land because they said indeed the region was a place for livestock. So they saw this land and their big concern was being able to have these big flocks and big herds instead of dwelling with the rest of their brothers and sisters in the actual inheritance that God had given them. Their first concern was making a living, not in making a life that God had ordained for them. And what we're going to see is that this is going to create problems from that point on. They were so far from the place of worship that we're going to see in chapter 22 of Joshua that they just about cause a civil war because they set up their own altar just to remind their children that they were still part and citizens of Israel. Their separation geographically would continue to create problems nationally and socially and militarily all throughout the time of the judges, all throughout the time into the time of the kings, And by the time that Jesus comes, we see the full fruit of this bad decision in full bloom as this place that had seemed to be ideal and have it all from a practical perspective proves to be disastrous from a spiritual perspective. You remember in Luke chapter 8, we see that it was this region of the Gadarenes Right? Those who were of the tribe of Gad, they're on the east side of the Jordan and of the Gentiles, the, the Galilee. That land was dominated by Gentiles. It was filled with pigs. It was inhabited by demons. And these people ultimately, remember, they begged Jesus to leave. Perhaps because he had just run their whole herd of demon-possessed pigs over the cliff. You remember that? Which, of course, incidentally, if you don't know, that was the very first time in the historical record that we see that anyone had ever served deviled ham. You can't tell me you never heard that one before. Deviled ham. Okay. So in terms of our types, these tribes another picture for us. They're kind of a picture of what we could call borderline believers. Borderline believers in the church today who get right there close to inheriting the the promises, but they never quite enter in to claim it in full. No matter how successful they might seem to be out here, and just as we see here, Joshua reminds these tribes they have this duty and they made this promise to come out and assist their brethren as they go into the land, these kinds of borderline believers are often very willing to serve the Lord. They're very willing to help out for a time, but as soon as their jobs are finished, they head for home and they just do whatever they want to do. And what history shows us is that it doesn't ever end well. But in this case, and at this point, to their credit, When Joshua reminded them of the promise they had made to Moses, it says in verse 16, So they answered Joshua, saying, All that you command us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with 
Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words in all that you commanded him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. Now, before we pat these three tribes on the back, understand that the pronoun they, there in verse 16, probably refers to all of the officers from all of the tribes that Joshua had addressed, not just to the leaders of those two and a half tribes. But what a great word of encouragement the response of these officers would have been to Joshua, right? Here's this promise of the people to follow after God. And no doubt the willingness of the people to receive Joshua and to follow him as their leader, replacing the great Moses, this was a confirmation of all the things that the Lord had just said to Joshua at the beginning of the chapter. And notice in verse 17, where we see what I believe is the reason that the people promised to follow Joshua was because the Lord was with Joshua. They said, we'll follow you like we followed Moses because we can see that the Lord is with you. And think about this from Joshua's perspective. It's like them saying, listen, Josh, we know you've got a lot on your plate right now. Right? You are leading the most important people at this time in the history of the world into the most important thing that we as a people have ever done in the world, this conquest of the promised land. So Joshua, we just want you to focus on leading. You be strong and you be courageous. You just focus on that and don't worry at all about us. Just know that when you turn your head back to look over your shoulder, know that we're going to be right behind you. And what a great blessing that is to any leader when a group of people would say that. You just listen to God, right? You obey God and you lead us wherever God tells us to go, and then we're going to follow you right there. And that's the commitment that they made here to Joshua. And there comes a moment when a Christian realizes in his or her life that although he or she is already born again, that they are tired of the wilderness. And they are tired of all of the wandering. And in the book of Joshua, the people of Israel are at that very place. Just like some of us might be at that very place even here this morning. And that's why I so firmly believe that this study through this book is going to be so encouraging and it's going to really be so very exciting for us as a church because we're going to see what it means to really step out and to move in to this promised land of living this spirit-filled life. Understand, there was nothing easy about what was coming, and they knew it, just like Joshua knew it. There were going to be battles, there was going to be bloodshed, there was going to be struggle, and there was going to be strain, and possessing the promises never comes easily, but it always comes, because God is with us. And just remember that it always comes to the extent that we are with him. It always comes to the extent that we're following after him as he leads us. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we, we do thank you for the great 
encouragement that it gives to us, Lord. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help to make these truths real to each one of us in our hearts, Lord. Help us as we meditate on these things, Lord, in your word. And as we, um, Lord, just seek to have you to help us to possess these promises, Lord, to appropriate these things and to, to make them a part of who we are and of, of our experience. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and uh, let's worship the Lord.